Welcome to Deep Dive MH370, Episode 17, Strangeness. Hello, I'm Andy Tarnoff, the publisher and founder of On Milwaukee, and I am joined by Jeff Wise, aviation journalist, MH370 expert, and today we're trying something new. Welcome back, Jeff. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, I'm excited for, uh, for a new crack at this case. We're going to take a, a look at it a little bit differently today. We are going to take a, a different look at this in different ways, including we're trying out a new piece of software because I'm sure people are really tired of hearing us complain about our technical issues, but we've had a bunch of them because we're doing something that we've never done before. And that's right. not just a podcast, but that's just a remote podcast from halfway across the country. So we're crossing our fingers that this is, this is going to be the way to go. We're also going to be introducing a different kind of episode uh, for a different kind of viewer and different kind of listener. So, so more on that. Um, this is, I wanted to call this episode view from 30,000 feet, but I, I like your idea better because it, it's a little bit more succinct. Right. Uh, it, actually a better even term would be a view from 43,000 feet ah. since that's a maximum cruising altitude of a triple seven. Um, you've spent 10 years of your life investigating this thing. Yeah, it's been 10 years and I've gotten pretty granular. I've talked to, you know, dozens of experts in all kinds of different aspects of the science, everything from marine biology to orbital dynamics. It's a really fascinating range of science. Um, but you know, getting stuck in the nitty gritty, can pull one's attention away from the big picture. And you talk about the view from 43,000 feet. Like, let's pull back, because this is now our 17th episode. Yeah. We've been doing a, an episode a week, so that's four months. We've been talking about all the granular detail, which you really need to understand this case. But you also can lose sight of, like, what is the overall characteristic? And you and I, Andy, were, were talking earlier about how, you know, as when, when one looks at an accident, in detail, one, one starts to get a sense for like the character of it. In the same way that when you get to know a person, you start to develop a sense of their character. What are they like? Are they are they funny? Are they are they smart? You know, what are their characteristics? And and MH370 has, I have come to feel over the years I've been looking at this that it has a very particular, almost I would say unique character. And, and, and now that we've, we've been bringing viewers and listeners through the details of the case, I want to pull back and talk about the overall sense of what this case is like. And we've looked at some of these aspects, and, and I want to like sort of cast our glance forward and talk about some more that we haven't talked about yet, but we will in more detail. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's do some of that. Go okay. Ahead. Well, so the, 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 the thing I keep saying about MH370 is that the closer you look, the weirder it gets. You know, a lot of nor a lot of like I'll, I'll call them normal aircraft uh, investigations or like m normal stories. I do a lot of different kinds of stories as a journalist, and usually they might seem kind of puzzling. But the more you learn about them, the less puzzling they get. Like things get explained. With MH370, the evidence itself often tends to be baffling. Like things happen that should shed a light on what occurred, and yet that evidence itself raises even more questions. And so the digger we deep, the more we get kind of curled around on ourselves. And so what I wanted to do today is talk about, well, not all of them, but five of the most kind of baffling pieces of evidence, the biggest sort of mysteries embedded in the bigger mystery of what the heck even happened to this plane. And I even want to tell our listeners and our viewers why we're doing this, because one of the things I love most about this podcast is it truly is a conversation. You know, in, in all these 
like and subscribe things. We're telling people, you know, leave comments, ask us questions. We'll read them. We'll answer them. And we'll take them to heart. So in a way, I feel like even though we're sitting in these, uh, you know, these, these studios, uh, it's still it's still an interactive experience. And what we have seen is that the viewership and the listenership has continued to grow through each episode, and that's awesome. And the people who are probably watching episode 17 right now have seen episodes 1 through 16, and we love it and we appreciate it. But at the same time, it may not make sense to introduce, and I think our work gets better, but to introduce uh, new viewers and new listeners to episode 17. So the reason for this kind of separate episode is we're creating a for lack of a better word, a teaser episode that will mm-hmm. exist separately from this. And that will be kind of our presentation because as much as I loved episode one, we were definitely still getting our sea legs on that one. It was audio only. There was no video. It was in retrospect, it might've been a little on the rambling side. Uh, so, so the people who are watching and listening to episode 17 right now are going to get kind of a twofer. They're going to get this conversation that we're having, and they're also going to get this, uh, this, this teaser episode, which we're calling, uh, tentatively as we record it, you know, the, the five most mind blowing unanswered, well, what are we going to call it? The, the, the most five baffling most... mysteries of MHA. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. it is so that we're going it's going to seem a little, it's, it's going to, it's like people who've watched it so far are going to be like, wait, we've already talked about that. Well, yes, but this has a dual purpose of introducing right. the podcast to new people as well as, as kind of refreshing the view from 30,000 feet because right. there's so many details on this thing, Jeff, that even, even I, who I've, I spent a lot of time on this, I can't always remember the chronology. I can't remember exactly what happened because some of yeah. it's also kind of similar, right? It's like seabed search one, seabed search two, aerial search right. one. That's and, true. That's true. Uh, there's a certain circularity to it. Um, so, yeah, that's the, that's the basic idea is that we're going to take a th- view from 43,000 feet yeah. for people who have been along with us for this ride over the last four months. But we're also going to do sort of a cut down version to give an overview for people who aren't familiar with what we're doing at all. So if you're listening to this now, you probably don't want to need you don't have to bother to watch the intro that we're cutting out of this. But it, it, if you wonder, well, it didn't, how come that's so similar to this? That's why. Although, again, your participation as a reader or a viewer and a listener is so helpful, that would be the one you would most likely want to send to your friends because ah. um, if you're saying, hey, I'm listening to this super cool podcast, yes. sometimes, in fact, myself, I'm like, hey, check out the super cool podcast that Jeff and I are doing. I'm like, but now you got to watch 17 episodes of it. Right. It might be more palatable to send them. Yeah. Send them this this mini episode. Uh, I'd also like to point out uh, last week. This one will be a much shorter one. But uh, there there are two quick points I'd like to make. Uh, First of all, this episode and all episodes are available available for sponsorship. And uh, it's a great opportunity to um, connect with an engaged uh, growing audience in some really clever sort of ways. And the easiest way to find out about that is to visit deepdivemh370.com or to quite simply just to email me and that's andy at onmilwaukee.com the other thing i'd like to point out is jeff you have a book yes about this which oh by the way <laughs> it's been lurking in the background this whole time it's like the clue that you that you find there it is i, re- I refer to it quite often because right. before you know as soon as i watch the netflix netflix yeah. podcast like the next day i ordered your book oh, and fantastic. I, I blew it's very good jeff 
Well, thank you very much, Andy. I mean, it, the intention when I when I first published it was to just give a, as succinct a summary of the important uh, facts about the case that people would need. It is a complicated mystery. I sometimes liken it to a Swiss watch. Um, and if you need to understand it, you really need to take the case open and look at the gears. Um, but I also don't want to bore people. I don't want to belabor any points. So it's, it's kind of a precursor of this podcast in that it tries to bring readers through the evidence. And so if, if you're following along with this podcast and you want to kind of ground yourself in what happens when, the, the book is a great companion. So it's called The Taking of MH370 by Jeff Wise. We will put a, uh, an actual link to it in the YouTube video and the audio podcast. It's available on Amazon. Yeah. It's, let's see, it's, uh, it's like less than, two, it's 182 pages. It's a quick read. I mean. It's a tight read. I, I, I read it in one or two sittings. I really well, I appreciate it. that, Andy. Um, so yeah, that's a great that, that's a great tip. And um, but I think we should move. I think we should get to the heart of the matter. Okay, so starting now, here comes the teaser episode. Let us know what you think, <laughs> and we'll be back at you next Thursday with a linear chronology uh, episode eighteen. Right. MA370 is an aviation mystery unlike any other. It's not just that 239 people disappeared into the night 10 years ago. It's that the evidence itself is so deeply weird. We're explaining these five greatest mysteries to introduce you to a podcast that is unlike anything you've seen or heard before. There's a lot of MA370 shows and podcasts out there, but what we're trying to do is something really radically different. We want to break it down into detailed examinations of all the evidence and try to build that together into a really rock-solid foundation so we can understand with total clarity what happened to this plane. We're not here to sell you on a cockamamie theory. We're here to deliver the facts in a way that people can understand and absorb easily. We're going to take you carefully, meticulously, step-by-step step, through every twist and turn in the case, carefully considering every legitimate piece of information. MH370 is a technically complicated case with tons of scientific data, and the closer you look, the stranger it gets. Time and time again, reasonable assumptions that any normal person would make turn out to be wrong. But once you roll up your sleeves and dive into the details, a lot of this confusion goes away. It turns out that the range of possible fates is much more limited than most people can imagine. My name is Jeff Wise. I'm an aviation journalist and the author of the book, The Taking of MH370. You might also have seen me on the Netflix documentary, MH370, The Plane That Disappeared. I've been studying this case in detail for a decade, and I've talked to dozens of experts across a wide range of scientific fields. And my name is Andy Tarnoff. I'm the publisher and founder of On Milwaukee, a media company based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin for the last 25 years. As a digital storyteller, I have been fascinated by aviation's greatest puzzle, and this is an amazing opportunity to take a serious and deep dive into solving it. One of the things that's different about our approach is that most other people inevitably try to tell a single story about what they think happened to the plane. And in doing that, they inevitably paper over the aspects of the story that theories really struggle to explain. The fact is that MH370 isn't as simple as a plane that simply vanished into the night. It's a disappearance that unfolded over the course of seven hours. And in that time, a whole bunch of strange things happened. And strange things kept happening in the months and the years that followed. MH370 isn't just aviation's greatest mystery, although it is. 
but it's also a collection of smaller mysteries. Here are five of the most mind-blowing mysteries of MH370. Question one, who made the plane go dark 40 minutes into the flight, and why? Yeah, this is the, the, the opening mystery of this whole event. It's a normal flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, 40 minutes in, for reasons to, the, to this day no one can explain. The plane goes electronically dark, and it throws an aggressive U-turn and heads back over the Malayan Peninsula. We just don't know why somebody would have done this. And it's not one of those things that you could do with an autopilot. This is pilot control. We know it was pilot controlled because it was so aggressive that it's too aggressive for the autopilot to carry out by itself. Somebody commanded this turn. No motive makes any sense, and it's not really clear why anybody would want to do this. Question number two, why did the SATCOM system turn back on an hour after it went dark? This, for me, is the crux of the whole mystery. It's not where the mystery started, but it's the part of it that we have the hardest time grappling with. This is actually the, the key to everything that happens over the next six hours, where we know the plane was flying, we have this Inmarsat data, but we are so puzzled by it. Now, the plane was completely dark. It had turned around. It was seen on Malaysian military radar, but then three minutes after it leaves Malaysian military radar, at a point where it was completely invisible to the world, it could have gone anywhere, done anything, they were scot-free. And yet, the satellite system gets turned back on and it produces the signals that will let investigators figure out where to look for it. The thing that is really puzzling about this is there's two parts really. One is it's something that most airline captains don't know how to do. You can look it up, you can figure out by reading the manual how to do this thing, but it's not something the average airline captain knows about because I've talked to many of them. So how, do they, how did whoever did this know how to do it? And then secondly, why? What would be the motive for turning the SATCOM system back on? It would let you use the, the phone, for instance, the satellite phone, but that satellite phone wasn't used. And so it's really baffling both how whoever took this plane knew how to do it and why they would do it. Till that SATCOM system turned back on, it was easy enough to say this was a catastrophic accident or that the pilot made some emergency maneuver and all those systems were turned off. The thing is turning it back on signaled intent. It signals intent and sophistication. So it really changes the tenor of the whole conversation. And yet, it's something that many people who have commented on this mystery have completely overlooked. I think this really needs to be core because everything that happens follows from this mysterious act. So this is really, when I say that, that the MH370 mystery has itself mysteries embedded with it, this is the one that I think is the most baffling and the most important. Question number three, why wasn't the plane found on the southern seabed? After scientists at Inmarsat realized that they had this data, or more technically correct to say the metadata, the data about the information being exchanged between the plane and the satellite, they were able to put their heads together and after a lot of work come up with a rather sophisticated new kind of mathematics that allowed them to derive quite narrowly where on the seabed they should find the wreckage of this plane. Where was the plane located when it sent its final transmissions? And yet, after spending multiple years searching the seabed and covering an area the size of Great Britain, nothing was found on the seabed. Nothing was there. Why wasn't it there? You might be tempted to say, well, the ocean is big, you know, it's hard to find things. But they had been able to define quite precisely where to look, and yet it wasn't there. Why wasn't it there? 
How come this puzzling circumstance arose and how do we explain it? Most people who look at this from a sort of mainstream perspective just find it easy to completely overlook. They, they, they act as if it's not a huge problem. In the course of this podcast, we explain why it really is a big problem and how we can grapple with it. It is a huge problem. Planes don't disappear and eventually they get found. Never before has so much effort been put into finding a missing plane and, and hundreds of millions of dollars without result. Question number four. When scientists looked at all the marine sea life on the debris, it looked way too young. Why? For a year and a half after MH370 disappeared, a lot of people were wondering, well, how come there isn't any floating debris? Nothing's been spotted from the air. Nothing has been found washed up on beaches. Where did the wreckage go? Where did the floating debris go? Well, finally, after a year and a half, the first piece was found washed up on the French island of La Réunion in the western part of the Indian Ocean. And for many people, that was case closed. Okay, now we know that the plane went into the ocean because we have a piece of wreckage that obviously floated from the impact site. Well, hang on. If you look closer at the evidence, it again turns puzzling because this piece was completely covered in a kind of barnacle called Lepus anatifera, a goose barnacle. And scientists can determine the temperature that the water of the water it was uh, floating through and how old the barnacles are by analyzing their shells. And when they did that, they found out that the, it looked like these barnacles were only a couple of months old, not a year and a half. So how do you explain that discrepancy? Why is the sea life growing on these pieces of debris so much younger than you would expect given how long it's supposedly in the water? Question number five, how was one guy able to find all this debris? This is a really controversial question. As time went by, more and more pieces of debris were found washed up in various places, all of them in the western part of the Indian Ocean, which itself had implications about where the plane might have impacted if this debris did in fact come from a crash site. Here's a part that some people have raised questions about. Most of the pieces, there were about three dozen pieces that were eventually collected, some of them, not all of them, were definitively shown to be from MH370. But most of the pieces that were collected were collected by a single individual. Now, probabilistically, given how huge the ocean is, how much coastline there is, how many people were looking, you would expect that not to be the case. That basically, the chances of any given person finding any piece of debris is very, very low. But one guy seems to have defied the odds. Was he just very lucky or did he have a secret that nobody else knew about? That's something we're going to look at in a future episode. All of these individual mysteries roll up into the bigger mystery, which is what happened to this plane? What happened to the people? How do we solve this mystery? Can we solve this mystery? Does somebody know the answer? And how do we get people to pay attention? All of these mysteries themselves demand explanation. And the only way to do that is by building brick upon brick of fact and really rock solid inference. And all of this is available via our new podcast, Deep Dive MH370. It's available on every streaming platform. On video, it's on YouTube and Facebook. In audio, it's on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Amazon Music. It's everywhere that you could possibly view or listen to a podcast. We want you to come along with us on this journey. So strap in. This is really a crazy ride. We're going to take you on a roller coaster through aviation's wildest mystery. What'd you think of our big teaser episode, Jeff? <laughs> yeah, I think it's really important for people to understand that this case has a nature of its own. It has a character 
um, that sort of emerges from all the pieces of evidence. And so that if you look at the evidence only in a granular way, you won't get the sense of the character of the case. And time and time again, we see the same thing happening. Something happens, some evidence emerges, it seems to mean one thing, but then as you look closer, it turns to have turns out to have levels of intricacy that you would might not expect. And so now that, you know, we've been on this journey for 4 months, I think it's it's, it's it, the, the our listeners and viewers can really understand what I mean when I say that the closer you look at it, the weirder it gets. Going forward, we're going to see that in future episodes too. We we teased at some of those in the five weirdest mysteries that we just went through. And so and those aren't even all of them, I hasten to add. There are many more aspects. It's almost like um, a fractal where, you know, you zoom in and it, and it, like, there's, there's the same pattern. And you zoom in and there's the same pattern. It's like the closer you look, things just consistently don't add up. And I'm a journalist and I look at things for a living. And, I, and, I, and I, I take a question, you know, some event has occurred, and I want to try to understand, you know, the, the classic, you know, who, when, where, why, what. And and try to answer those questions and normally as you dig in clarity emerges everything facts tend to reinforce themselves um i mean just this morning you were working on a piece about uh decompression on an alaska airlines flight i mean so the stuff is stuff you're working on every day which (laughs) again you know this is this is a uh this is a live this is as close to a live podcast as you're going to get without it being live all of these things are continuing to unfold. And, but, you know, to sort of like, yeah, to put these two things together, on the one hand, you had a um, sort of catastrophic decompression as a plane was climbing through 16,000 feet out of Portland, Oregon. And as you look at it, it all makes sense. Like, you can very quickly start to piece together a narrative about how, like, Boeing, this plane has a history of um, technical problems. Um, this was a new plane. Uh, this section of the, of the fuselage blew out under... Um, difference in pressurization, um, it all kind of makes sense. It all fits together. And as we find more information, it will tend to confirm what we already knew. Whereas with MH370, each new, each new piece of information like just actually makes it fuzzier and foggier. And we, we really struggle to how do we, how do we explain all of this? And so a lot of times people have the initial reaction to MH370 is, well, I'm sure it's a simple case. Well, didn't I hear that the pilot took it? Yeah. Um, and so people assume, especially in the early days, Andy, what you would hear time and time again is people would invoke Occam's razor, this kind of... I remember that. Right? This principle yeah. that, like, simple... People love that one. Yeah. That's, that's, people, that's, that's, like a, that's a good, like, literary thing that you can just throw out if you don't really understand something. <laughs> Occam's razor. I mean, it's a fairly simple principle... And it's a good kind of, it's a rule of thumb. It's not a law of the universe. No. And it especially doesn't apply in cases where people are engaged in deceit and trickery. And yeah. we know that whoever took this plane, as we, as we talked about in, in these five great mysteries, we know that whoever took this plane was aggressive, was sophisticated, and seemed intent on... Uh, some degree of deception. I mean, look, whether you think it's UFOs or you think it's the pilot or you think it's the Russians, there is some degree of trickery involved in this. I think that pretty much most people think that some sort of deception and trickery happened, which is why the Occam's razor thing goes out the window. Does not apply. It just doesn't apply here because it's the, the, 
it isn't the simplest explanation is the most realistic in this case. It might have been until some of this information was discovered, but yeah. once that happened, it was too late. So, yeah. And so people see, people seem to think that you're entitled to a simple explanation. People think that like to, to, to propose a, to propose a theory that isn't simple is somehow like violating their rights. People actually get angry at me. Yeah. Um, I was going to bring that up actually. Cause yeah. you know, they always say, don't look at the comments. And I've, I've lived by that uh, with 25 years of on Milwaukee.com because right. people are angry out there, but I did look at the comments. I did look at the reviews on, uh, deep Dive MH370, and overwhelmingly they were very good. But I, I did read one surly review that said that we uh, we think we're the smartest people in the room, and that we're trying to use highfalutin uh, words and science to, um, to 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 make our point. Well, that <laughs> I, thought, I mean that's a different issue, man. I mean, if we're jerks, that's on us. You know what I'm saying? I, I like, hope not. I hope not too. But I mean, I listen. I could be a jerk. But that has nothing to do with the fact of, like, what is the evidence in the case? How do we explain the evidence in the case? What is a valid hypothesis? What is not a valid hypothesis? How do we rate the relative probability of the different hypotheses? We can talk about these things and still be jerks. You know what I mean? And listen, not every, every, nobody's going to be a fan of everybody else. Right? No, and I don't, I don't mind that. That's okay because I'm glad that they're paying attention. And, it's, you know, when they stop commenting, that, then we have a problem. But, you know, I should point out that I, I'm not, like, 100% sold on the theory that you present in the book. I don't know if you're 100% sold on it. It's my just goal the one that you think sell. is the best My goal one. is not to sell. Yeah. My goal is not to sell. What we're trying to do here really isn't, you know, there's so many podcasts and documentaries out there where people are like, I have the th answer and I'm going to try to convince you. And this is very dangerous. In fact, I, at some point, maybe in the future, I think it might be fun or interesting to go through some of the other major theories that are out there. Because people are always writing to me saying, oh, what do you think about this yeah. person's theory? And I, it's a distraction from, I think, getting the, the basics down, which is what we're trying to do now. But I can envision, uh, envisage a point in the future where we do look at some of these theories. But I think there's a common problem to all of them, which is that they try to sell a theory. And in doing so, they overlook the problematic nature of the evidence itself, which is what we talked about in the teaser that we just read. So what I'm saying is I think if some evidence came forward that said Zahari was, it proved that he did it. Right. You'd be like, all right, cool. Now we have the answer. I mean, you're not going that's to live. That sort of happened. That yeah, sort of you're... happened when the, when, this, when, the, when the flight simulator data was released. I was the one who was the first person to write about it. I mean, I said, like, this is very pro-Zahari. Now, it wasn't completely probative, I don't think. But, you know, if, if any evidence that comes forward, I will talk about. And I will try yeah. to incorporate it into the relative probabilities. So that's why this is an ongoing podcast, because stuff is still happening. And, and truthfully, like, if 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 this mystery gets solved and your theory is wrong, I think you'll probably be the first to admit it because yeah. you, you don't, you're not claiming, you I don't know, want the to answers. think of it. I don't want to think of it as my theory. I, you know, some, well, some of the most important work on the, on the, um, vulnerability hypothesis was done by Victor Inello, not me. I mean, it should yeah. be called the Inello hypothesis. Now he has, he has said in no uncertain terms that he doesn't think it was, carried out, but he's the one who did all the math and, and really kind of did the deep dive digging that, that allowed him to formulate it. Right. But so the, the, there was one other thing I wanted to say. A couple, actually, there was two other things. Go ahead. We're, which, we're just kind of, one this one is just, is, now we're just kind of winging it here. I, yeah, that's, that's what we're here yeah. for, right? Um, yeah. The journey of looking at MH370 has been an ongoing one. And so I, I just want to alert um, readers and viewers and listeners that I actually did 
an article for New York Magazine, which, as I am speaking today, recently came out. It was it's awesome. It's really yeah, good. and it was about the vulnerability. Like there are all these. I propose that MH370 was basically an exploitation of a vulnerability. Yeah, it was a sort of a hack. And what has become clear in the intervening years is that there's actually a lot of cybersecurity vulnerabilities in planes that are flying today. Different vulnerabilities from MH370. What was done to that plane could never be done again because of the peculiarities of the circumstances. But I do think, and I, and I intend to cover this more in years ahead because I think it's going to be a, an important and growing issue, is that cybersecurity is going to, is going to be increasingly important for all infrastructure, and commercial aviation is a kind of infrastructure. I really love all... that article, Jeff. I thought it was Thank really you. good. And you talked about um, GPS technology and hacking and all that stuff, and it raised even more questions for me. Yeah. So it's like, hmm, how, it all ties how big together. do we get on? How big do we get on this? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, but Andy, it's like if you are in a productive line of inquiry, stuff keeps happening. Right. Yeah. And, and we're in, in this is something that's definitely going to come to the fore in future episodes, like pretty far down the line. But if we're proposing that MH370 was operating in a hostile environment, did more hostile attacks happen in other contexts? And the answer is definitely yes. For sure. I want to ask you one more question sure. before we wrap up this kind of random cornucopia miscellaneous <laughs> okay. episode sure. yeah. and you and i have talked about this offline but i want to i just want to put it on the record here um so we're into episode 17 people we've already discussed the possibility that that this was flown north to kazakhstan and the right. rush is behind it so victor said it could happen but you're it seems to me like you are the only mainstream journalist investigator anybody who right. who has this opinion yeah how how is that possible it's not so bananas, given all the things we've talked about. In order to talk about the, the vulnerability of MH370, you have to have a very deep knowledge of it. And so what okay. tends to happen in journalism is that people kind of parachute in. They, they, they do a Google search. They, talk, yeah. they, they, they do a roundup of the literature. They, they, they get a sense that the consensus view is that we don't know what happened, but it was probably the pilot. And if you have that level of knowledge, it's going to be very hard to get past sort of home base. So you think that the 24-hour news cycle, the cable news, the immediacy to get things out fast first as opposed to right, and the lack of attention from just the way the media is and, and journalism is right now means that there aren't enough people who understand this mystery to the depths that you do? I think that's a part of it. Um, but it, and it's, I mean, certainly the way that Google and Facebook have sucked the advertising out of journalism, has so crushed our industry. Yeah. Um, and you and I, I think it's, it's fair to say, I don't think it's going out on a limb to say that you and I have both found ourselves operating in a very tough, uh, you know, financial environment where it's really, there's fewer and fewer outlets that are paying less and less money. And it's really hard to develop expertise. I've basically done it just because the hooks are so deep in me. It's almost half hobby. Yeah, um, it certainly hasn't been justified economically. Well, but it's something you, I deeply care yeah. about. I mean, we're doing this on a whim. I know that you've you've said in the podcast that you hope, that you want to turn this into a business model, but like that's all well and good, but that's not what we're doing right now. And we're doing it on a wing and a prayer because we we think it matters to us. Yeah. But, well, but I always believe that I always yeah. believe that in journalism, you know, the the work you, you do the work and the money will follow. And as well, many, <laughs> that, do you, believe you may that? feel. Do you believe I, that? I mean, I. 
I do believe it. I mean, I've been okay. doing this for 25 years. And the mo- well, the money has followed in my business. But I will tell you that when we do uh, long investigative series, they certainly don't get the number of reads and page views that some of the fast and easy stuff gets. Right. But you, you're right. You have I guess we're agreeing and disagreeing. I mean, you have to you have to do this stuff in order to derive the value. And winning Pulitzer Prizes doesn't equal revenue and doesn't equal right. paying your employees. On the other hand, if you don't do that kind of stuff, then you don't have a chance at being taken seriously as a media outlet or as a journalist or as a publication. So I guess I'm saying two, I'm saying two different things, but they're kind of the same thing. But it is tough out there. It is absolutely tough. Yeah, it's I refuse tough out to there. concede. It's hard I refuse to, to concede that media is dying. Yeah, People well, jerk. I don't think you're a jerk. Um, episode 18, so we will be back on our normal pace next week mm-hmm. and continue with the chronology. We left off uh, when the debris was found. We, we, kind of, we kind of left it at a cliffhanger. Yeah, so oh, sorry about that for we everyone. Were jerks we're dangling we didn't it. We didn't even answer the, the cliffhanger, but we're going we're gonna to sort of follow up after the cliffhanger in next episode, episode 18. Okay, well, I hope you guys enjoyed this, uh, this diversion and this um, miscellaneous episode. We did it for a reason. And we'll be back at you next week. Like, subscribe, do all the things. Please leave the comments for all the reasons that I just told you. And uh, let's get right back at it, Jeff. Smash that like button. Smash Thanks, Andy. It. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Jeff. See you next week. <laughs>